This is episode 50 of The Creative Giant Show. Linda Kaplan-Thaler joins me to discuss what separates successful people from unsuccessful ones. Hint, it's not about talent, looks, or dumb luck. And it's immediately available to you right now. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to The Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Alrighty, so I'm excited to be joined by Linda Kaplan-Thaler today. Linda is an advertising Hall of Fame luminary and creator of many of the industry's most iconic campaigns, including Kodak Moments and the hilarious Aflac Duck. Linda was the co-founder and CEO of the Kaplan-Thaler Group, which quickly became one of America's fastest-growing ad agencies. She is currently chairman of Publicis New York and the co-author of several national bestsellers, including Bang, Getting Your Message Heard in a Noisy World, The Power of Nice, and The Power of Small. She lives with her family in New York City. She and her co-author, Robin Koval, have recently released their fourth co-authored book, Grit to Great. The main thesis of Grit to Great is that it's not innate talent, luck, or ability that makes people successful, but grit, that old-fashioned word that's coming back in style because it's so needed. I'm a big believer in grit too, so I'm looking forward to a great episode here. Linda, thanks so much for the work you do and for joining me on the show today. My pleasure. Alrighty. So let's sink in and talk about how you and Robin met. I read it in the book. I mean, you met over the brand muffin, right? Um, But how do you meet? How do you go from brand muffin to starting a business together? Well, you know, I had spoken with a lot of people and uh, I I was on the creative end. I'm a writer and a musician and I needed a business partner. And, um, you know, I pay a lot of attention to sort of nonverbal cues. And I really a big believer is you learn everything about somebody in the first, like, 40 seconds that you meet them. <laughs> so I wasn't really happy with any of the people that I was talking to. And then I went to this muffin shop and um, I met Robin and this uh First of all, I love the fact that she was earlier than me, so that was a good thing already. And I walk over and I see that there's a surgically sliced huge bran muffin, one where I would be sitting and one where she was sitting, and this is what she said to me. Hi, my name is Robin Koval. The muffins here were very expensive and they were rather large, so I took the liberty of buying one and dividing it between us. If you don't like it, I can get you something else and I can take the rest home for later. So I don't remember exactly what she said after that, but it was business, business partner love at first bite. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> what did I learn? A, I learned that she was punctual. Two, I learned that she was frugal, which was so important in starting a company t- together. Three, she was proactive in coming up with this great idea. And four, she was very considerate of others. So what else did I need to know? Um, so that was it. When people say to me, was starting the business with Robin a piece of cake? I always say, no, it was more like half a muffin. That's fantastic. Um, I love that. Um, so from the very start, it seemed like you guys have a great partnership. And this is your fourth co-authored book together, correct? Exactly. Yes, it is. Um, So what made you want to focus on grit this time? 
Well, you know, we were trying to figure out why our business grew as quickly as it did. We were within three years. The Kaplan Thaler Group was one of the fastest growing agencies in the country. And I like to think we're both intelligent and have a modicum of talent, but it was really more than that. What we realized is we were winning these pitches, pitches that we had no right to win because we were so small and unknown, simply because we outworked everybody. I mean, you know, Michael Bloomberg, our famous or infamous mayor of New York, once said, I will never be the smartest person in the room. He was a very, very bad college student, but I always know I will outwork anybody and everybody, and that's why I always succeed. So we started talking to some uberly famous, successful people and realized that not one of them had the it factor. They were not born with incredible brilliance and they didn't have a silver spoon in their mouth and they were not, you know, possessing any virtuoso talent. But they had what we began to realize was the grit factor. And we define grit as an acronym. We're in advertising, so we're very good with acronyms. Guts, resilience, initiative, and tenacity. And then we started looking at the research out there and said, you know, we better write a book about this because grit is really the new black, right? And we realized in the research that we were, you know, uh, looking into that people who are born prodigies, only 2% of them actually amount to anything in their lifetime. But 98% of the world's most successful people had this grit factor. Colin Powell was so ordinary growing up, even he thought he would never amount to anything. He was a very bad student in college. Steven Spielberg did not get accepted the first three times he applied to film school. Actually, one of the film schools that he applied to now teaches a course in Steven Spielberg films, which I thought was, this is a film school he got rejected from. Michael Jordan, and I don't know how many people know this, everybody think he was born with this prodigious and, and mental, you know, incredible physical prowess. He could not even make his high school varsity basketball team. A lot of people don't know that. Jack Ma, the founder of uh, Alibaba, couldn't even get a job at KFC when he graduated. You know, and the list goes on and on and on. But we just felt we had to do this book because we had to let people know that grit was available to anybody and that how ordinary you are, you can lead a very extraordinary life if you develop your grit uh, grit quotient, which we try to uh, help people hone in on in the book. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I love the book because I'm a grit guy too, right? Um, just I can I I could tell that just by listening to you. <laughs> you, you could tell I've got grit. Great. Um, I passed. You're great. <laughs> I passed the test. Um, but you know the thing about it is, so many people's story about their success and where they are in life. There's kind of like this grass is greener on the other side thing going on. And the way I say it is like grass is greener on the other side, but you still got to mow it, right? There's still <laughs> there's still stuff over there that you got to deal with. And so that's I think the thing that that I loved about the book and. Um, there's also this whole second act, like I, you know, whatever I've done in my life, like I coulda, woulda, shoulda, if I were younger, if I were smarter, I'm 60 and like, it's too late for me, all those types of stories. So what do you say to someone who's coming to you with those types of stories? And like, well, you know, as somebody who's still in her incredibly late twenties, ha ha ha, I have been doing this for a very, very long time. And 
I have to say that, you know, one of the things we love, the chapter I most love in the book probably is Grit Has No Expiration Date, just like a Twinkie, okay? It goes on forever. Um, And all of this stuff that we've been told that you need to retire when you're 65, guess what? Retirement is a totally invented concept. After World War I in Germany, uh, with the rise of the industrial age, they simply had to get people out of the workforce because there weren't enough jobs for the younger people. So they invented this word. It doesn't exist anywhere. It doesn't exist in any teachings. It doesn't exist in Bibles. We consulted religious scholars. It was simply invented. And this whole notion that you start to lose brain cells, unless, of course, you have a debilitating disease, you actually continue to grow brain cells until the moment you perish. And the only way that you can really lose brain cells is if you stop thinking. So we encourage people because it's like it becomes a vicious cycle, you know, don't sit and, you know, look at the sunset, constantly keep your brain active, learning new languages, um, uh, learning to dance, which involves physical and mental agility, uh, doing puzzles, whatever it is that you love to do, continue doing it. And I have to say with the new research that's out in terms of longevity, the new uh, demographic that is terribly important on, and on the rise are people in their hundreds, not even their nineties, their hundreds. So if you're thinking about, Oh my gosh, I got to make it before I'm 25 or under 30, you know, there's all this hype out there. And you know what? It's not only getting people who are middle-aged depressed, it's getting people in their twenties depressed because why am I not Mark Zuckerberg? How, how come I haven't made it yet? You know what? Most people who accomplish great things, it takes decades to do it. So slow down. Life is not a, a sprint. It's really more of a marathon. And actually, if you look at people who are developing apps, apps and technology around the world, most of those people are actually in their 40s. So like, calm down, everybody. You're probably not going to have one career. You're probably going to have three or four careers in your lifetime. Get used to it and just relax a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, um, for me at this point, the whole retirement concept is, is I don't understand it. Um, and I'll, I'll say this because I had, <laughs> I had a, I had a um, philosophy professor that was the chair of the department when, when I was an undergrad and he stepped down from being chair and everybody's worried, like, are you going to retire? Like, what's going on? And he's like, why would I retire? I would do this. <laughs> like, I like what I do. I just don't want to do the chair thing anymore. Right. He's like, exactly. Right. Ex- um, exactly. And I think people get to that point where they go, now I got to try something new. I mean, I've been in advertising my whole life and I have to say, I love, you know, I've always loved writing books and I love talking about the concepts and the books that we write. And so that gives me great joy. And you really got to follow your passion because when you follow your passion, it never quite seems like work. Um, And I also want to say that people often think of happiness as the absence of problems. Actually, that doesn't make the brain happy and it doesn't make people happy. What makes you happy is not the absence of problems. It's the way you feel when you solve problems because our brains are wired to solve problems. Otherwise, we couldn't exist as a species. And by the way, when you're solving problems that help other people, you, re- you are releasing endorphins and it lights up. Neuroscientists have shown us it lights up when you're doing something good for somebody else. We call it grit for good. The same part of the brain lights up as when you have sex or when you are given money. So 
we kind of really feel good when we're doing good things for people. And I think one of the best ways to use your grit, your tenacity, your resilience is when you are helping either somebody that you know, or it could be a stranger around the world. Absolutely. But I want to pause here though, because there's enough of the myth of retirement in culture. You know, you get to that certain age, you, you have your certain kids, you move down to Florida, life is cool, right? What, so we're saying here, like, okay, really that's a made up concept. Like, you know, maybe find something you like to do and keep doing that service of others, blah, 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 all that stuff. But there's still this lure for there. What is it about the lure of retirement that makes it compelling? Because we're in advertising and marketing here. Like if it didn't have any, exactly. juice, it wouldn't live on. Exactly. Well, I think, you know, it was put best in an advertising campaign that I wish I had thought of that basically said, if you could pay yourself to do a job, what would you do? And people were saying things like, I don't know, um, learn, you know, teach French or work at an orphanage or become a painter. And the answer was, well, isn't that what retirement is? It's not about standing still, but it's paying yourself for a job that you love to do. And I, it really hit home for me as a boomer to go, yeah, that's what retirement is. It should be doing a job that you really, really enjoy because you've worked for it and you've earned it. And what we saw in our research is a huge amount of people who suffered from depression who went off you know, down to Florida, didn't do anything with their time. And you know what? It worked for six months or a year. Then it got really boring and really depressing. I talk about this story about a man named Marvin who, after he retired, was, and he was an electrical engineer. So you know, Sherry Lansing, a former CEO of Paramount Pictures, says, we should never say we retire. We should just rewire. And he did that literally and figuratively because he was an electrical engineer who always had spent time wiring. And he decided to rewire his life and used to educate the people in his retirement community about new technologies. And he was very involved in the early television sets and, and how to transfer your old 35, you know, um, uh, millimeter film into DVDs or digitally. And when he got into his 90s, him and his wife moved to New Jersey to an independent living uh, building community. And he asked the residents not to be, you know, deterred. He said, what can I do to make your lives better? And they said, Marvin, I wish we could laugh more. So he started these workshops. He wasn't a particularly funny guy, but he gathered, he knew that they were not internet or computer savvy. He would aggregate the best and funniest clips on YouTube, whether they be Saturday Night Live or old Cal Burnett shows. And he'd have the Laugh with Marvin monthly seminar where people in their wheelchairs would gather around and they would just laugh themselves silly for an hour. And he did that month after month after month. A lot of people called him brilliant. I called him dad. And I'm sorry to say my dad is no longer with us. Um, but up until the very end, he was inventing, making lives better. Uh, and that's what everybody's life should be like, right? You threw a hook on us there, Linda. I don't, I appreciate it. I appreciate the hook. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'm lucky we, I dedicated the book to him and my mom and uh, I got to read the passage in the book about him. I got to read it to him uh, before he passed away. And let me tell you, he was beaming. 
he was beaming. Although he said I exaggerated a little. I said, that's okay, Dad. I can exaggerate about you a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's kind of you're right there. You know, <laughs> you know, I found your points on entitled millennials and I'd include the net generation that follows them to, to be yeah. insightful. And the point seemed to be that one of the consequences of the self-esteem movement was that it fostered an over an overdeveloped sense of entitlement. Right. Um, since we're both likely to agree on that, though, um, I'm curious as to what you think the positives of the self esteem movement are and in other words why would we hang on to parts of that paradigm when, when it's right well it's it's interesting and you know, for those people who are not familiar with the self-esteem movement it was it was um started by a psychologist who felt that we really needed to empower our children to feel that they were all very special and unique uh, now, the idea, the tenet of this was was really good because you should make your child feel like they're special and unique. But it went too far in the other direction where everybody was a winner. Everybody was brilliant and everybody was incredibly talented. You know, it's very interesting because in the Torah, we celebrate people for being average because that means you are not incredibly sick or feeble. And the idea of being average used to be something that was really wonderful because then you were starting on an even playing field. But it went so far in the other direction where teams had, you know, there were no winners and no losers. There was a fun medal that I, that we ran across, which said, if you had fun, you won. Well, you know what? You didn't win. And in advertising, as you know, there's no silver medals. You either win the account or you don't. It, it was very funny. Once there was a piece of business that we were pitching. We were a very young agency. And the client came up all the way from Atlanta and she said, I have some wonderful news to tell you. Well, we were, you know, we were hiring people as, as she spoke. And she came up to our office and said to Robin and I, Robin Covell and I, who started the agency together, and write and written all our books together. She came up and she said, I'm here to tell you that you didn't win the business, but you came in second and bravo for you. And it was like, you know, lady, you could have saved the plane fare because we didn't win it and that's okay. So I think what's important to remember is yes, you're unique in who you are. Uh, as Oscar Wilde once said, you might as well be yourself because hey, everyone else is taken. So <laughs> that's great to be unique, but not to think that you're above or more special than anybody else. And unfortunately, there's been people who enter the workplace who have been the results of the self-esteem movement where their parents went crazy about it and expect to get constant raises and promotions like, hey, I was on work. I was, you know, on time every day for the last month. Where's my bonus? So I think people have a little bit of learning to do. But as a therapist once said to me, what your parents don't teach you, life does. So they're catching on pretty quickly. The job market, it's very difficult. It's very scarce for a lot of people. So they're learning really quickly. Um, celebrate who you are. Just don't think you're that special. Yeah, to answer that last question, it cracks me up. I've been on time every day for the last month. What's my reward? Your paycheck. That's <laughs> exactly. Your paycheck. That's what we. That's the arrangement we have here. <laughs> yeah, you're still working at the company. That's a pretty good reward, right? <laughs> um, so, as, you know, as we've talked about, um, 
um, pseudo or aspirational retirees. And we've talked about millennials and we've talked about the net generation, like in the, in the different ways in which they can all use grit. Like, is there any particular demographic or age group that you think has a more time tapping into and effectively employing their grit? I'm sorry, say that again. I'm not, I'm not quite getting the question. Is there any particular group of people, demographic or age group that you think has a more difficult time tapping into um, and ah. employing their grit? You know, the great thing we found about the book is it's age agnostic uh, and it's available whether you're eight or 88. You know, my son learned it very early on because he's a, a chess player, a world-class chess player, uh, won his first um, uh, reward, shall we say, uh, as when he was five, he became the U.S. kindergarten champion. So he learned very early on that you occasionally draw, but you always either win or lose. And he used to cry. Um, and it used to break my heart. But then the Russian grandmasters who were teaching him used to say, good, good to cry. Next time you prepare your opening better, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that we need to do a better job with our kids. You know, one of the things that we found was a woman in Iceland who's a, a educator and she teaches kindergarten kids to improve their tenacity and stamina. She makes them do an activity for at least a half hour, even if they get bored. So, you know, a little boy will, let's say, well, I want to try knitting. And she says, okay, but you're going to have to knit for a half hour. And they cry and they complain. And then they, they finish up the half hour and she applauds them. And she said, good. Good to learn how to be bored because in life, you're going to be bored plenty. And they give the kids a round of applause for being tenacious and sticking with whatever it is they had to do for a half hour. And she said the results have been incredible. As they go on to do other things in their life, they really learn about resilience and tenacity from what they had to do as a kindergartner. But I will say that the beauty of grit is, I mean, you could be 90 years old and still be using your grit. We have an example in the book of a man named James Henry, who at age 93 finally admitted to his family. He was a very, very poor fisherman uh, from Peru, and he finally admitted that he was illiterate. Now, talk about the grit you need to fake that for 93 years. Undaunted, he said, but I don't care. I'm going to hire, now that I told everybody, he hired a tutor who taught him how to read. And at 96, he decided, you know what? I'm going to do more than read. He wrote a best-selling novel called In a Fisherman's Language. It was a world-renowned bestseller and actually went to the White House so Obama could meet with him and shake his hand. So never think it's over. It's never over till you're horizontal. Absolutely. I was... um honored I, I would say now at the time it didn't feel that way to, to go through u.s army training and boot camp and things like that because there were plenty of opportunities to be bored um <laughs> plenty of opportunities <laughs> to be bored and in somewhere you would rather not be um, <laughs> well we have we have many tips we call them grit builders in the book for a way that you can you know sort of get on your road and one of the things is of course to learn to accept failure um you shouldn't be looking at failure as something that you're afraid to face. You should be something that you're willing to embrace because it is the way we call it failing forward. It is the best way to get ahead. And I love the example of James Dyson, who's, you know, in, invented the obviously revolutionary um, vacuum cleaner. Well, most people see that. What they don't see is that it took him 15 years and 5,126 failed fr- prototypes 
that totally sucked, or perhaps I should say did not did suck. Not suck. <laughs> that was the problem. Yes. And he said, you know, he said, every one of those thousands of failures brought me closer and made me rethink my plan. And he said, I ended up with something far better than I could have ever imagined. So you should look forward to when you fail because you are learning so much. And I think people are in such a rush. You know, we live in this ADD culture where we think that stardom is just one selfie away, that you're an overnight YouTube sensation. We watch The Biggest Loser. We see somebody shed 40 pounds between commercial breaks. And we don't read the fine print that says it took them a year and a half of diet and exercise to get there. We just are so impatient. And it's too bad because we're constantly trying to, you know, um, Neil Postman, a brilliant, brilliant media um, and, and journalist uh, professor who used to teach at um, NYU, he's deceased now, wrote a book 20 years ago called we're amusing ourselves to death. And basically he said, you know, we, and this was before the whole internet, you know, everything started. It was like, what is going on here? We don't pay attention to anything unless it's entertaining and we're missing all of this great stuff because everybody has to sugarcoat stuff for us. We have to get used to being bored. And by the way, you know, one of our interviews with the, was the guy who, uh, the editor of uh, the cartoons at the New Yorker, who said, when you're bored is when you're usually your most creative because the brain is constantly trying to fill up the vacuum. And you know, I mean, as a creative person, that's why you have your best ideas when you're not thinking about frigging anything. But if you're constantly looking at your email and you're constantly trying to engage your brain with all of this other stuff, you don't give the brain time to kind of loosen up and make new, uh, new connections between, this, uh, between the dendrites in the brain. Yeah, I'm going to pull in um, just the research from one of our prior podcasts named Todd Cashton in the book, um, The Upside of Your Dark Side. And he and his co-author, Robert um, Biswas Steiner, I think is his name. I always forget his, his co-author's last name. Um, but they, they write about comfort addiction, that we've gotten exactly. so addicted to comfort that, and, and that's what we go after, that a lot of our flourishing or our thriving is just wasted it's because we're we're entertaining ourselves or we're just focused on being comfortable. Exactly. You know, it's so interesting because we used to be as, you know, if you talk to people who, who are evolutionary psychologists, we were bred to embrace discomfort um, because it was part of our survival is you had to be very attuned to everything. And I, I often kid people and say, you know, think about our ancestors, how long it took to start a fire and how many hundreds and thousands of years it took to even get to the place where he had fire. And there was no Angry Bird app to keep them amused. I mean, they really, really were much better at focusing, being bored, and being tenacious. And we've lost that art. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very, very, very sad because I think about all the things that do not get invented, all the books that do not get written, because we simply just want to have a good time all the time. You know, one of the things that speaking to somebody who was a rabbi said, nowhere in the Torah does it say that you need to be happy all the time. It, it's like a concept that's very much this, you know, the last hundred years. It's like, what is this thing about being happy, being content, fending for yourself, providing for your family, but being happy? You know, you don't even know what happiness is unless you're unhappy part of the time, right? So if it becomes yeah. the norm, what do you really have? Yeah, I mean, uh, 
one of the reasons I don't like translating the Greek word eudaimonia into happiness, which is what some people do, is because that's not, we have turned happiness into this effective feeling, this sort of, you know, happy in the way that we're talking about, where they meant right. closer to flourishing or thriving, which sometimes means that you're just miserable, right? You're miserable. Exactly. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. as a creative person, you know, and every time I have to write a new script or write a new speech and the people who know me, who work with me know everything to me is starting with the blank slate. It's torturous. I hate it. Why am I doing this? I have to actually write something else now. I can't come up with any more ideas. I don't have it. And I, my husband, who's a musician and composer, same thing. Why did I get involved in this show? And then, of course, comes that moment that eureka moment where you go, oh my goodness, I actually have a friggin' idea. I thought I had no more ideas left in my brain. And of course, the more you have ideas, the more creative you are. We know that ideas breed more ideas. Like rabbits. Like, <laughs> like rabbits, rabbits, like rabbits. Um, let's go back to the grit builders because I love that you had those at the, each of the, um, at the end of every chapter. Which of those habits are the hardest for you to practice at this stage in your life? Uh, well, that's not, you know, there's so many I took, we have a grit quiz in the book, which you can take. And I, I wish that I did better on that grit quiz. I will tell you that this book was really friggin' hard to write. So that, there's the grit right there. Most of our books we do in a year. This book took almost three years and it's a very small book, but you know, like, like Lincoln said, it took me a long time, you know, it takes too long to write a short letter. So I'm writing a long one in order to condense this into sort of snackable bites that people could read and enjoy. Uh, we really wanted it. We really like things to make things easy on our busy, busy readers. Um, and writing these grit builders, a lot of them, we sort of started adapting and going, you know, I really should do more of that. One of the things that was interesting was, which is actually something I do do, and I never knew why it, it was, gave me such greatest satisfaction, came from a Navy SEAL and with your military background. He said, the first thing you're taught as a cadet is to make your bed. Now, this is very funny because I always make my bed, and I've been doing it religiously since as an adult. And I never knew why it gave me such satisfaction. Of course, it doesn't always give my husband satisfaction because half the time he's still sleeping in it and I'm folding the covers around it. No, but seriously, <laughs> why is it? And he said, well, this is what it is. He said, you're taught as a cadet to do this because when you make your bed, you are starting your day with a small accomplishment. And, that, and you know this, you know, it makes you feel good. And no matter what happens for the rest of the day, when you come back, you're going to see that beautifully made bed and it's going to feel good. And that gives you that little bit of a happy, optimistic boost about the rest of the day or the day that's ended and how to begin the new one. Secondly, it teaches you to finish what you start. And we talk in the book about a grit builder of start with something little like cleaning out that messy kitchen drawer or making your bed. Because when you know how that feels to finish something, you can then go on to tackle the bigger things, but get into the habit of finishing whatever you start. And the third thing that's important is to learn to do something expertly and perfectly. And when you make a, your bed perfectly with all those hospital corners, it gives you a little bit of that empowerment to then to go out and perfect something bigger, even if it's a conference you're going to have with a client or a speech that you're writing, just do it perfectly. Oh, those hospital corners. Mm. 
you know those well, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't want to go back there. I, I don't want to talk about it. No, I'm joking. Okay, okay. Well, I would say there's a fourth thing is especially in an environment that's chaotic and there's a lot of uncertainty and maybe a lot of stress, you have a default that you have that first thing that you do in the morning. You can't, you, you don't sit there and wonder, you don't sit there and overthink of it. You know, the lights come on, somebody starts yelling at you and you make your bed, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I love the fact that you're saying there, it doesn't require a lot of thought. You know, we talk a lot, a little bit in the book, but I wish we could write a whole other book. You know, this whole idea of the power of habit, you know, is that we get into these habitual things. And it's only when we get into something that's habitual that we can really make things easy to accomplish. When you, you know, you uh, drive a car, when you're first learning, you know, you have to remember all of these things that you need to do, look at back of you, da, 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 da. and then once you can put all those together in a clump, it goes to a different part of the brain. We don't have mm -hmm. to think about it anymore. I can we use our frontal front cortex for really much more important things. And this, I know for me, one of the big things I must do every day is I must exercise for an hour in the morning. And it has to be in the morning. And I don't, you know, usually it's something aerobic like the treadmill, but sometimes I combine it with weightlifting or exercise. Why do I need to do this? I need to do this because A, it's doing all these things in my brain. It's making me feel really good. But it's gotten to the point where, and it's also healthy and it helps you to, you know, lose calories and all that. But it is so habitual now that I can't even imagine waking up like I couldn't leave the house without brushing my teeth. How can I possibly start my day without an hour of exercise? And those are those kind of habits. And I tell people, don't, if you try to do something once in a while, it never works. But if it becomes something that you never, ever think about anymore, like I do with, you know, aerobics, then it's really easy, right? Yeah, I'm that way about meditating. I can't not do it. Uh, oh, I, that's something I got to learn. I got to learn to meditate more because I get so anxious when I wake up in the morning, you know? Yeah, so how about I'll take on your habit and you take on mine? <laughs> well, yes, I, I want to I know how to be do you do that? Do you do that several times a day or once a day? Just or? once in the morning. Yeah, um, by the way, anyone listen, the Insight Timer on the iPhone game changer for that just go get it uh okay it's 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 for two different reasons i'm riff here for a minute because it's helpful one is it has successive timers so you can set up like you want to meditate 30 minutes you can set it up so you have a, a bell that goes off every 10 minutes um and so i have one that's open meditation that it's a bell at 10 minutes it's two bells at 20 minutes and then the third bell ah. three bells and so that way as my mind starts to wonder about how long i've been doing this and what's uh -huh. going on I'd be like, doom, doom. I'm like, okay, I'm at 20 minutes, right? I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. But it also has guided meditations. So it's a part of the app. Um, and so there are other. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to check that out. And, you know, that whole idea of uh, temporal, um, uh, I forget what the actual term is, temporal displacement, but people get very anxious when they don't know how long they have to wait for something. And it's the reason that in subways you, uh, or, or apps where you can track your bus or train, but on subways, people are just so much calmer now because you look up at the subway. I'm, I live in New York city in Manhattan and you go, okay, I have to wait six more minutes for the number one train. I guess I will listen to some music and people are very calm. Mm -hmm. It's the not knowing that in creates so much anxiety. And when we looked at grit and we looked at how difficult it is to accomplish their goals, it was the not knowing that, you know, like practicing something on the piano 
how long am I going to really need to know this? If you can get some guidance along the way, we talk about you know, celebrating small victories, right? Forget about how long it's going to take you to finish that piece or save up for a thousand dollars. Celebrate that you did those two measures, you know, in piano, playing piano for many, many years, always the teacher would say, one measure at a time, perfect the measure, go on to the next measure. And it's really true. And then you feel really good when you've mastered that one measure. Um, Paula Radcliffe, who's won several uh, marathons, uh, has a wonderful story. And she talks about if I had to wake up every morning with the thought that I had to run 10 miles, whether it's raining or snowing, which she does daily when she's training, she said, I would never get out of bed. Well, what do you do? Well, this is what I do. I count my footfalls. And I know that when, I forget what the amount was, when I have counted 200 footfalls, I have gone a quarter of a mile. And then I do the next 200 footfalls. She said, and I get the same 10 miles done, but it's such a small thing. And when I get on my treadmill, I start at the highest incline, 15. And I do like a very brisk walk because I'm not really good at the running part because of my knees, but, you know, I'll start at whatever it is, 4.1 or 4. And I do that same kind of countdown. I never think about running, you know, for an hour. I go, I'm going to do at the 15 incline for four minutes. And then I'm going to do it, you know, and then I'm going to 14. Well, by the time I've done 20 or 30 minutes, I'll be damned if I'm going to give up. It's getting so easy now. And literally the workout is kind of all downhill from there. And I, and I just tell people, break it down, start with the hardest first, work your way down. And it's very easy to accomplish what you want to need to do for that day. Yeah. I'm similar. I have a 300 word or 300 word trick that I tell people about when they start like over worrying about writing. Just write 300 words. Just write three. Exactly. Can write three hundred words. Everybody exactly. Can write three hundred words, and, and you know, you know, yeah. is it my old boss Jim? You know, who I worked for seventeen years would get up. He wanted to be. He was a creative director, but he wanted to be a novelist. He would get up every morning and write for four hours. Didn't matter what he was writing, and he did that for twenty-one years. And then he came up with the formula for writing a bestseller. And that guy Jim is James Patterson, who is the number one best-selling author in the world. You know, he never spent any time dreaming because dreaming gets you nowhere. He just, he just wrote. And Stephen King, they once asked him, what does it feel like to be so incredibly talented and gifted as a writer? And he laughed and he said, I wasn't born with any gift. He said, if you spend eight to 10 hours a day doing something and you do that for 15 or 20 years, you will be so gifted. You're not going to believe it. <laughs> 10,000 hours, man. That's exactly right. Alrighty. So speaking of hours and grit, what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? The most, oh, wow. I've got so many. I have a burning to desire to write a play uh, about somebody that I know with a very, very tragic story with a beautiful, bittersweet end to it. And I knew when I heard this gentleman's story, that I just had to write this play. And it's been on and off my table now for three years. Um, I tried to take a, a three-day playwriting crash workshop and they performed, the actors performed 
something, one of the acts, one of the, the scenes that I had written and it was so bad. And I said to Jim, James Patterson, I said, well, somebody has to write the play, but it can't be me because what I learned is that I can't write a play. And what he said to me was, no, Linda, what you learned is that you can't write a play in three days. <laughs> Go back and write an outline and write another outline. And he said, keep writing outlines. It may take you a year. He said, you'll write your play. And I just thought that was so inspirational. So I need to reread my own book again. <laughs> uh, it's easier sometimes to make the food than to eat it, you know? Exactly. Especially my food. <laughs> All righty. So if people remember nothing else about you and your body of work from this episode, what would you want them to take away from it? Well that you can, anybody can get from here to there. Certainly if you're tone deaf, you're not going to be singing at the Met, but you know, being realistic, you can get to where you want to go. Grit is the formula that gets there. And, you know, read the book as thousands of people are. I've been speaking to colleges across the country and corporations around the country and soon around the world, publishing the book now in many languages. And it's, it's, it's humanity's great equalizer because it's accessible to everybody. It's just a question of honing it, developing it, putting in the time, and then deciding what it is you want to do. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Okay, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Linda. What's that space in your life, maybe your work, maybe your play, where maybe it's time to use a little bit of grit and sink into that? Think about that. Think about it a little bit more, but then more importantly, do it. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.